Hi, thanks for joining us for this message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. We pray that you are blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Red Church and its ministries, or if you'd like to support us financially, you can find out more by heading to redchurch.org.au. We are in the midst of a series, Platforms to Pillars, which is looking at this concept that we are given this platform mentality by our society, that we should live upon a platform, that our needs, wants, and desires should be put elevated, high. And contrasting this with this idea that what the scriptures call us to is actually to live as pillars. Pillars are supportive structures, working together with other pillars to create a space for the presence of God to fill. Now, this is the school holidays, and classically in Australia, the school holidays are often a quieter time in church. Lots of people go away. I read this week that uh, I think one of the busiest days at Australian airports, um, I think, was either on the Friday or the Saturday, as lots of people jetted off to different places around our big nation to have holiday experiences. And often if you look at some of the advertisements that tourism ads and uh, travel agents show, they often show someone who's having a kind of mountaintop experience. This often standing at a height, uh, looking out across a great vista. And this is something that people attempt to have, that holidays aren't just about relaxation, that sort of in our culture, they're also about having a particular kind of experience. And very often that's looking down from a great height. Now, one would think that this concept of going to the top of a mountain and having a mountaintop experience would be something that humans have always done. Mountains are pretty darn old. Like, they're not new creations. They've been around for a long, long time. But one of the really interesting things is that most people throughout most cultures, throughout history, have not thought to climb to the top of mountains and to get a mountaintop experience. In fact, this is something quite new. The idea of mountain climbing is something very, very new. And you can see some of this sort of tension in Australia around Uluru, that when I was a boy, that people who went to, to Uluru simply just climbed it. But we've seen the change as uh, the indigenous sort of uh, custodians of Uluru have asked people to respect the rock. It's a different way of looking at the world. Instead of climbing it, uh, it's a very different way of seeing what a mountaintop experience is. Now, Robert McFarlane, who wrote a book about mountains and what they represent and why people have this desire to climb mountains, to have these mountaintop experiences, pointed back the emergence of this desire to climb mountains back to a particular piece of art that was produced in 1818 by the German romanticist painting, a painter, Caspar David Friedrich. We've got an example of it here. You may have seen this picture. It's called The Wanderer Above the Sea of Fog. A lone figure, hard to make out, stands atop a mountain. Beneath him is this great sea of cloud. He is alone. He seems reflective. There's a sense of achievement. He's gotten up there wearing some pretty fancy clothes. This is not like your you know, mountain climbing gear. He's got a proper like, coat on. He's got his walking stick. Very sort of regal, aristocratic figure. 
And McFarlane says this is the moment when this craze of climbing mountains possibly started. And after this, you saw this great movement. There's another really interesting book written that was actually after World War I, when a lot of uh, uh, men had had this brush with death and they wanted to have that experience again, that, that rush that came from being in almost a battle-like situation that a number of people started to get this hunger to climb peaks. And so often we use this term, mountaintop experience, to describe not just the act of climbing to a top of a mountain, but a kind of transformative experience that we have at the top of a mountain. We use it for things which aren't about mountain climbing, where there seems to be a moment where we get perspective, a different viewpoint, and this is transformative. So this is often what is sold at times like this, when people decide to go on holidays in Australia we sell them a mountaintop experience because it is believed to change something within us. Now, as part of this series about platforms to pillars, we've been walking through the book of Exodus and we've been following the story of the people of God as they move out of the oppression and exploitation they're experiencing in Egypt, enter into the, into the wilderness on the way to the promised land. And we're using this as sort of a, a background, uh, a scriptural way to lead us from the platform mentality of our culture to God creating us into pillars. And what we get to this week is Exodus 19, the encounter at a mountain. So mountains are a really important part of the story. And we're going to see that as we read from uh, Exodus 19, verse, we'll start at verse 1. Now, on the first day of the third month, after the Israelites left Egypt. On that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered into the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you'll be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to God. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud. Remember, if you were here last week, we talked about clouds descending an image that the people of God encounter when it happens, we're told that this is a time to watch out for something new creation's about to break out. I will come to you in a dense cloud so the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said and the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Make them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Now to fully grasp what is going on in this story, we need to understand the significance biblically of mountains. 
Last week, we looked at some of the different symbols that are elements of the natural world that, that tell a bigger story in the scriptures, like trees, these kinds of ladders to heaven. Given as images of a flourishing believer, we see in Psalm 1, in other places in the Bible, an image of the kingdom of God reaching up from the ground, deep, uh, deep roots, and then this sort of canopy at the top, like the glory cloud. So something you may have never noticed when you've read the scriptures is that at the beginning of the book of Genesis, as it describes the world being made, it says in Genesis 2 verse 10, that there was a river watering the garden flowed from Eden. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there, it was separated into four headwaters. Now, one of the things that biblical scholars note that rivers tend to flow downhill. And if there was a river flowing out from Eden, this actually says that the biblical garden of Eden was at a higher place. Eden was a kind of holy mountain of God or just below a holy mountain of God. And this symbolism of mountains was true of all of the nations which surrounded the people of God. Mountains were really important. And in the scriptures, they're really important. And they play a slightly different role in the scriptures, as we will find out, to the surrounding nations. We encounter Mount Sinai in this story where Moses receives the Ten Commandments from God. When the ark lands on earth after the great flood. It lands where? In Turkey, to modern day Turkey, in a place called Mount Ararat. When Abraham is asked to sacrifice his son Isaac, where Solomon built the first temple in Jerusalem, this is on a place called Mount Moriah. When Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal and fire comes down from heaven, where does this happen? This happens in Mount Carmel. When tragically Moses gets to see the promised land but never gets to go there, this account occurs on a mount called Nebo. When Jesus prays before his crucifixion and when he ascends into heaven after his resurrection, this happens where? On the Mount of Olives. The location for the transfiguration where Jesus' appearance changed and he speaks with Moses and Elijah happens at a place which people believe to be Mount Hermon. Mount Zion, mentioned all through the scriptures, represents Jerusalem and the heavenly dwelling place of God. Jesus gives his great teaching, his famous sermon, where will we call it the Sermon on the Mount because it happens on a mountain or a hill. And Jesus is crucified on a hill called Golgotha or Skull or Calvary just outside of Jerusalem. And the scriptures end with a mountain. In Revelation 21 verse 10, it says, And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Mountains are a big part of the Bible. Why mountains? Well, mountains are important in the scriptures because they have proximity to heaven. Last week, we looked at the way that at the beginning of the scriptures, God created the earth and the heavens, and the heavens operate as this kind of divine blueprint, a place where God's will happens in fullness. This is why Jesus teaches his disciples, your will on earth as it is in heaven. So the holy mountain operates as a kind of meeting place between humans and God. Now, the term you'll see often through scriptures is high places. 
And in Israel, high places were used by the people of God for sacrifices, for worship. And this symbolized and flowed out of this concept of the proximity to heaven. But we also see there's these moments when the great renewals come to Israel, particularly in books like Kings, where we see that the high places must be cleansed because they were actually contested spiritual ground. And when Israel would, would succumb to idol worship with other forms of worship that oppose God would happen, it would often happen on those high places. And you see this around the world today. Often forms of different forms of magic and paganism happen on high places. And it's the special place, a high place, where that heavenly pattern is seen. Being positioned atop of a mountain allows individual to perceive the heavenly pattern and bring it down to the earthly realm. As you see with Moses, he goes up to the top of the mountain and down, up and down multiple times in the story of Mount Sinai. So that's the biblical idea of what a mountain does. But you see this battle in the scriptures between two understandings of mountains. In Genesis 11, verses 1 to 9, we get an image of what this battle is about. It says, Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves, otherwise we would be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and tower that people were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will do not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth and stopped building the city. They started building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Now, to understand what is going on here, what these people are building, we need to understand that one of the distinctive features of the cultures that surround Israel at this time, the Sumerian or Near Eastern cultures, is that their cities had a particular structure that was present in them. We've got an image here. This is what is known as a ziggurat. I love the word ziggurat. It's like a, the emperor of all rats, uh, at least in my mind. But what a ziggurat is, is a ziggurat is a multi-tiered pyramid. At the top of the pyramid, you can see in this illustration, there is a construction. It's a house. And this house was seen as the place where the gods would come and dwell and meet with the builders of the ziggurat. This is where negotiations happened. Things were offered because the gods were seen as actually angry. They would change their minds often. And they needed things from the people to ensure that the sun would come up, that babies would be born, and that the crops would flourish. So they were offered sacrifices. The vision of humans in these cultures, where the humans were simply kinds of chattel or slaves for the gods to use to make the fertility of the universe continue to happen. And this was at the center of cities. Cities were cities, but they weren't secular cities as we understand them today. They were really big constructions that happened around these particular kinds of buildings, these temples. 
Now, what's interesting about a ziggurat and how it, I think, has a really interesting insight for us in this series is that architecturally, how you describe a ziggurat is that a ziggurat is a series of platforms built upon other platforms. We in this series have been exploring the different platforms in our society, the platform of the stage. Now with social media, we all feel like we're performing all the time. Others are watching us. We look to this concept of the podium that often at moments when we feel confused, we look to someone who has a message, an influencer. This raised platform that kings and queens in the past we coronated on called a dais that in many ways, many of us today feel that our wants, our needs and desires should be platformed. And in a sense, we all act royally these days. The world in which we live may not look like a ziggurat, but the platform society in which we exist in, which shapes us, is really platforms built upon platforms. Now, one of the reasons that you see in this story of the Tower of Babel, you see this positioned against what we're going to learn about mountains, is that ever since Adam's sin had occurred, it was seen that the earth, in a sense, was tainted. This made it unsuitable to be a ladder to heaven. At the Tower of Babel, mankind attempts to construct a kind of structure that reaches to the heaven, but the movement is from the ground upwards. This is why God comes down, these two contrasting movements, humans in their own strength building upwards, trying to reach heaven, but God coming down from the heavens to thwart their efforts. Why? Well, James Jordan notes that the Tower of Babel, a ziggurat, and the pyramids of Egypt, the very place which the Israelites had found freedom from, were counterfeit holy mountains. Now, what does this look like in our day? What is at the top of our platforms built upon platforms? Let's return to the painting by Caspar David Friedrich. This image, in a sense, has become a little bit of a meme now. There's multiple readings of what the artist was trying to get at. I'm not going to go into all of them. But this has become a popular image today of the individual who has conquered chaos, society, who has reached a peak through their own endeavors. And having reached that peak, ascends to a kind of self-mastery, a kind of power that emerges from the individual. And I think at the top of our ziggurat, it's not an abode where we meet with some kind of pagan god. In a sense, I think at the top of our ziggurat, in our culture, is rather the human who endeavors to live as a god, to have a kind of transformative experience where they rise above all. This is the vision, even if we don't feel it. This creates a sort of hierarchical view of society where we compare ourselves to each other. But what the scriptures are telling us in their stories of mountains, in the story of Babel, is that man-made mountains cannot but fail. God instead chooses another way. 
which reestablishes the divine order and brings chaos out of what, which sorry, brings order out of what chaos the humans have delivered. So let's now, understanding that background, return to the story of Moses, the people of God, and Mount Sinai. What can we learn from this instead of trying to build platforms upon platforms with us at the top? What we can learn as we've been learning in this series to be pillars in what God is building? Well, let's pick about some of the verses. In Exodus 19, verse 10, it says this, And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in sight of all the people. What it's saying here is that as you come to the mountain, it's not about you getting to the top of the mountain and you being platformed, your wishes and desires being platformed above everything else. What this is saying is that for the people of God to ascend to God at the top of the mountain, that actually they need to consecrate themselves. They have to prepare themselves because something is coming. That they need to release the old patterns, the patterns of Egypt, the patterns of sin, the platform mentality that we have must be put down because we must come to God in a particular way. Why? Well, as we read on in Exodus 24, verse 15, it says, When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, note the numbers, six days, Time of creation from Genesis. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain. And on the seventh day, day of the Sabbath, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. This is an encounter with the holy God. You see, mountaintop experiences are actually about experience. We have been taught to find a kind of pseudo-spiritual experience through having experiences all the time. The mountaintop experience, and you see this so often in the advertisements, they don't look like uh, the painting from 1818, Wander Above the Sea of Fog, but often they're a, a young woman in front of an, like a Thai mountain, you know, looking down on the stepped patties, 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 not patties, patties. I'll just keep going. And often they'll have their sort of arms out like this and this almost transcendent look on their face. There's something actually almost religious about it, but it falls short. We live in an experience-driven society. But a mountaintop experience is something you consume. What happens in this story at the top of Sinai is not an experience, it's an encounter. It's an encounter with the holy God and it's totally different from surface level experiences. You see, an encounter with God is different to experiences because in an encounter with God, you have an encounter with holiness, with how different God is from us, how we are uh, 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 creatures who are, uh, are not divine. God is divine. We are creatures who have fallen short of the glory of God. But God in all his glory, an encounter with him inevitably would be an encounter with holiness. Mascaletta, biblical scholar, says this of this passage. Yahweh, the God of the Bible, Yahweh's holiness is like energy released from nuclear fusion. If treated appropriately, it can be a source of life-giving power, but if not handled properly, it can lead to catastrophic destruction. So there's a sense of awe around this story because God is different from us and God is holy. 
And an encounter with a holy God is different to experience because an encounter with a holy God will lead us to pursue holiness that will lead to new creation. You cannot but encounter God and not be changed. Exodus 24 verse 12 says this, The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commandments I have written for their instructions. You see, encounter leads to intimacy. What is unique about this is not like the stories that you see from the Near Eastern cultures and Babylonian cultures and Sumerian cultures where people go up to that little house at the top of the ziggurat and, and, and sort of cower before a God that changes its mind and they have to satiate because it's angry and ensure that the cycle of creation keeps going. This is actually a relational connection, covenant and relationship are being built. So this encounter leads to intimacy. But because God is holy, this encounter and intimacy with God leads to obedience. They see the heavenly pattern. God gives Moses the heavenly pattern. It comes down in these tablets of stone. God is beginning to shape a people. And intimacy has to lead to the obedience of living this out. At least the integration. Exodus 34, 29 says this. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two... Mount Sinai, with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him and he spoke to them. Afterwards, all the Israelites came near and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. And if you read the story, it's sometimes it's almost hard to work out when Moses is up and when he is down. And it's not like Moses goes to the top of the mountain, gets the tablets and comes back down. He's actually literally like a yo-yo, if you read the story. over several chapters, up and down, up and down, bringing some people up part of the way, going with Joshua, just himself, the elders at different points. And there's this movement up and down. And what that tells us is, is that obedience means integration. You can have the encounter at the top of the mountain, but you've also got to come down into the reality of the world. That the spiritual insights that we get from encountering God, the heavenly patterns that we receive, must be integrated into our personal and corporate lives. This is how pillars get built. Who are pillars then? What is this telling us? It's telling us that pillars are those who live atop God's holy mountain. What is God's holy mountain? Is it Sinai? Well, God's holy mountain is more mysterious, and perhaps you've never noticed this in Scripture, but I just want to take you on a little journey. Isaiah 2, verse 2, mysteriously reads this. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. You have this image of a mountain, a temple, a meeting place with God that is bigger than all the other hills of the world. Now, if we read on in Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler of the Neo-Babylonian Empire, a man who undertook huge architectural projects, including the restoration of the city of Babylon, and what did he do in Babylon? He built the city like a kind of mountain. It had ziggurats, but you know what it also had? It also had 
a kind of garden at the top known as the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. This guy is basically trying to recreate Eden and do it through human hands. Now, it's really interesting. We see this today, that that leaders still justify their legitimacy through often massive building projects. Interesting little fact, one of the great political legitimacy projects at the moment is being built in Saudi Arabia. You may have heard of the super futuristic city, Neom, or you've seen perhaps the video on YouTube of the, like, it honestly seems bonkers, this city called The Line, which is like 500 meters wide, but it's this giant futuristic city. It's gonna be run by AI. The Saudi Arabian government under the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, this young prince who's trying to establish his political legitimacy, not just in Saudi Arabia, but in the Islamic world and in the entire world, is building this gigantic city. They're promising it's gonna be 30 times bigger than New York City. It's gonna be the tech capital of the world. People will flood there, this new center. Really interesting. Two of the sites that people speculate where Sinai could have been, the sort of traditional site is is sort of in the Egyptian Sinai Peninsula. That's literally just across a really short distance, just across a little body of water from where Neom is being built. In recent times, there's a new sort of school of thought in some biblical scholars that actually Sinai possibly was in Saudi Arabia. And these accounts of this story that we're reading was in the place. That, that, that belief where that particular mountain is, is literally in the middle of where they want to build or they're building Neom. So literally, you have around this place a young king coming up who is wanting to build the most incredible global capital city. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Now, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And in the dream, being a big build project guy, he sees a construction, a grand statue being made of all different materials. But in this dream, he sees it being struck by a rock. And that little rock then becomes this huge mountain that fills the entire earth. A giant mountain that fills the earth. Like what on earth is going on? What is this massive mountain? In Daniel 2, Verses 4 to 45, Daniel interprets the dream for King Nebuchadnezzar. Now think about this for a second. Here's Nebuchadnezzar, the, like the president. This guy is one of the most powerful figures in the world. This guy is running not just his country, but a whole vast empire. The guy built the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. He seemingly is almost godlike, creating a new Eden. And he comes to whom? Daniel. Daniel, who follows God a foreigner in a foreign land, constantly under pressure with his faith, constantly following God's ways when the entire social structure is pushing against him. And in one of those moments where there's an avenue for God's way to be spoken to those who don't yet follow God, Nebuchadnezzar, so confounded by this dream, asks this follower of God, What does my dream mean? The king of the ancestor of Babel, speaking to someone who was touched by the mountaintop experience that happens to the people of God at Sinai. And Daniel interprets the dream. He says this, 
In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king that what will take place in the future, the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. What is this great growing mountain that Isaiah 2 verse 2 speaks of? What is this great growing mountain that grows out of a rock that prophetically is seen in this dream that crushes not just Babylon, but the spirit of Babylon that exists in so many human cultures? What is this mountain that is above them all? It is the kingdom of God and it's growing in our day. It's unstoppable. Its force moves forward. And after Jesus' death, where? On a hill outside Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Mount Zion, itself a mountain, that after this, after Jesus' ascension up a mountain to the heavenly places, what this means then is that unlike when Israel approaches this mountain where they're so afraid that if there's a trace of unholiness in them, they can even die approaching this mountain. What it means is this kingdom, this mountain is growing in the world, but we as followers of Jesus can approach the mountain. The writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 12, verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm to a trumpet blast or such a voice speaking words that those who have heard it begged that no further word would be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. This is not what is the mountain before us. The mountain of God that is growing in the world because of the work of Jesus on the cross, because of his sacrifice. It means this, reading on. But you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that does a be- speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Verse 28 reads on. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What is this saying? If you feel a sense of trepidation about where the world is heading, if you feel a sense of fear about where our society is moving, If you look it forward in your life and you feel a sense of hopelessness, what this is telling us is, yes, often we feel that because we are looking at the constructions that are made of human hands in the world. Maybe that construction is our own life built upon platforms and platforms which is simply not working for us. And the problem with getting to the top of the mountain, like in the painting from 1818, is you get to the top and often it's a very lonely place. What this is actually telling us is that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, a kingdom is growing in the world and it is unstoppable. A great mountain of God is growing like, a, like, like, a, like bamboo at an incredible rate and it's growing in our time. And the things that we're involved in, being here today in this room, opening the word of God, singing songs of praise, 
meeting with a few people, that where two or three are gathered, God is there. And what pillars are, they are people who have said yes to this vision. They dwell not in the valleys of doom and despair. Where they actually dwell is on the mountaintop with God. And we have to recalibrate our vision to understand that we dwell in the heavenlies with God. And actually, your identity is not built on the platforms placed upon platforms of the modern ziggurat, a 21st century platform society that we live in, but it's actually placed in the fact that Jesus died for you and his holiness is transforming you. Pillars are those who stand atop God's holy mountain. Pillars, yes, it's a service, it's a sacrifice. But what I want to communicate today is it's also a joy and it's a blessing. It is a map of how to live. And I believe that actually what God is saying to us is two things. Come to him. Come to him. There can be this sense that we get to these points of stagnation in our growth and feel that this is all there is. God is saying, come to me. I want to show you more. I want to show you the ways of heaven. And we have been in a rich season of invitation in this church where people are growing and God is doing more in people's lives. Secondly, I feel that what God is saying is there are plenty of reasons and things to look at and see how the church can sometimes fall over. And are they legitimate? Often, many of them are. But what we have here is a vision of what God is doing in our time, of the building of his holy mountain, a kingdom which cannot be shaken. This grows until the end of the age. And we saw that vision in Revelation when the new Jerusalem sits upon a holy mountain. There's an invitation to get on board, to be builders of God's church in partnership with him. There are so many people at the moment who literally have fallen off church because they've particularly post-COVID fallen out of the habit of coming to church, who are wanting to come back to church. There are more people, I think, spiritually open at this time because of all the way that the culture's platform society is starting to not deliver on its promises. There are so many people moving to Melbourne. This is the other night at the 6 p.m. service. I had about four or five conversations with people, all who turn up. Every single one had moved to Melbourne from somewhere else in the world and like didn't have a whole lot of connections. There is an invitation-ripe environment out there to invite people to join in this moment of what God is building in the world. 